This week, my family and I grabbed a little bit of ice cream coming home, uh, I think it was Wednesday evening, from the parks. And we took uh, that ice cream to a spot we really like. Now, right off St. Anthony Boulevard, just north of 35W by the Honeywell facility, if you know that big Honeywell facility just to the north of 35W, there is this beautiful overlook right across the street from Gross National Golf Course, right, this beautiful overlook looking to downtown Minneapolis. And just, there's just this little bench, and people will come and sit, and Tabitha and I have gone there on a little date and just sat and looked at this wonderful panorama of the downtown skyline. And again, it was sun going down. You know how the downtown glass kind of lights up in the dusk? And it was just beautiful. And there's something about that skyline, right? The, the skyline is so compact it looks like the buildings are right on top of each other. Like you could stand at one building and touch one of the skyscrapers and, and lean right over and touch the other one, right? When you are looking at the panorama, everything seems so compressed. But then you go downtown and you see, wait, that's actually not true. The IDS tower is many blocks away from the Capella Tower which is many blocks away from the Wells Fargo Tower, which is, which is even more distant from the new RBC Tower. And then you think U.S. Bank Stadium is, what, a quarter of a mile away from that. And what you, from a distance, looked like everything was right next to each other. Suddenly you say, oh no, there's a real distance between these things. I start with that picture because as we've been going through what, what has been called the Olivet Discourse together in our studies in the book of Mark, we are now in Mark 13 and wrestling together with what far more able expositors and commentators than I have had struggled with for literally about the last 2,000 years. What is Jesus speaking of when he has descriptions of these dramatic events? What is he talking about when he speaks of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet? And for those of you who were here last week, you knew we kind of jumped into the deep end a little bit. We only got through half a verse last week. What is the abomination of desolation? And I, I hope what we've been seeing together as we've been going through this passage is that, that that indication of the downtown Minneapolis skyline from afar and from near applies a little bit to the Olivet Discourse. There's a sense in which Jesus is speaking of events that his own listeners would live through in a certain way. A partial fulfillment of what Jesus is addressing but also as if Jesus was taking a telescope and looking past the immediate fulfillment with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He's looking ahead to a future day, a day that we haven't seen yet, that we haven't experienced, in which his words will receive a complete and final fulfillment. 
We have been trying to look, in other words, both for the ways in which Jesus' immediate hearers, his disciples, would have heard them and experienced some of these words in their own lifetime, and some in which we, his disciples today, may experience some of these foreshadowings, some of these previews. And then looking ahead to a day that I believe is yet in the future, in which these words will receive their final consummation. And we see that what might have appeared to be immediately close, like looking at that panorama of a downtown skyline and seeing the buildings look like they're on top of each other, suddenly we, as we get closer, see the distance and the foreshadowing contained therein. But I also start with that picture Because what I have been encouraging all of us through this study of the Olivet Discourse is this. Do not miss the forest for the trees. Or you might say it this way. Step back and look at the panorama. Look at all the skyline and get the big picture. One of my fears is that when we get into prophetic passages and we dive deep in trying to understand the end times and the last days, we get so focused on all the details, on all the trees, that we don't step back and look at the big picture and say, you know what, this applies to me today. Oh, I might not live through personally, physically those last days, but what Jesus is saying applies wonderfully to me and should change the way I live today. And I want to hold both of those ideas in our mind today. Because today we're going to move past the abomination of desolation last week, which we understood has an Old Testament picture of an idol-worshipping event or activity. Some kind of abomination connected to idolatry that would make desolate or that would destroy the kind of worship in a particular place. We saw how there was a foreshadowing of that in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and looking ahead in the future to a day that 2 Thessalonians 2 appears to relate to in which the Antichrist will stand in a rebuilt temple claiming that he is God, doing great signs and wonders and leading people astray to worship him. There's a future fulfillment even as there is a partial foreshadowing already in the past. We're going to move toward forward to that, or from that, I should say, into what Jesus says here in verse 19. He says, For in those days shall be affliction. Now listen to this. Such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. You know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about the worst days that humanity has ever known. That humanity has ever known, he said, from creation to this time, he said his time, and that ever will be. It'll be the worst. There will be nothing that could be compared to it in the past, and there is nothing that could be compared to it in the future. Those, he says, are the days of affliction. We're going to talk this morning on the subject of this, days of tribulation. Days of tribulation. What does Jesus mean when he talks about these days of tribulation? But perhaps just as importantly, what does it mean for us? How should it change the way that I live today? Days 
of tribulation. We're going to start, first of all, by looking at some of the features of, this, of these days of tribulation. We're just going to take a quick scan of what Jesus says here, some notable features. We're going to talk, secondly, about what I'm going to call the fulfillment. What does Jesus mean? When did this take place? When will it take place? And finally, what we'll call the focus. We'll step back. We'll look at the whole skyline together and try to understand what is the main idea coming out of these verses. First of all, let's look at some of the distinctive features of this time. Will you notice with me again, let's go back to verse 14. If you have your Bible, I just encourage you to have it open with us today so we can look at this text together. I want, in all things, you to make sure that I am speaking to you about the text itself and not something else. You should hold me accountable on that. Am I truly speaking to you the text the word of God. Look at verse 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. We talked about that last week. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter there and to take anything out of his house. Here's the first thing, the first feature we should note, is that this is distinctively Jewish. Distinctively Jewish. Do you notice that he specifies for us, what does he say? He says that those which are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Do you notice that? Should those that be in Judea. Where is Judea? Judea is in the southern part of Israel. It is the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, are you in this southern area of Judea during this time, in, it, in the land of Israel? Then you flee. He specifies Judea. He also talks about those who are being on the housetop. He says, when you're on the housetop, don't go down into your house. What do you do? You flee. You run. You go down the fire escape. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really have a housetop that I go and hang out on. I don't go out and hang out on my roof. If I did, my neighbors would think I was really strange. But in Jesus' day in first century Judea, the housetop, the roof, the flat roof, people would go up and spend time on that together. This was a distinctively Jewish feature. And so the idea of this housetop, Jesus is speaking in a way that his first century readers or hearers, his disciples, they would have understood. So those that are in Judea, you go. And those of you who are going to be on the housetop, you're going to be spending time on your roof patio, go down the fire escape and get out. You don't stay. It's distinctively Jewish. But notice also what we should draw from this is that it's distinctively terrible. The features of this time is that it's distinctively, uniquely terrible. Notice what he says. For in those days shall be affliction, verse 19, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. The worst time that has ever confronted humanity. He said in verse 20, And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. Now that's an interesting statement, is it? Unless God had shortened the days of those difficulties. Now let's try to understand what he's talking about here. The word in the Greek for affliction that is used, the days, the, those days of, shall be days of affliction, it's a word that literally means pressure. Pressure. Now, very interesting here. If you have ever taken, say, a grape between your fingers 
and you squeezed it. You are placing it under pressure. And when you place something under pressure, the forces of nature require that something happens. At some point, it's going to break. It's going to explode. I was yesterday, there was some carpet trim that I needed to, uh, that I needed to reinstall in our house, and it had a concrete subfloor. And so I took some masonry nails, and I was going to put the nail this trim in. And we got nails for concrete. And you should have seen, I'm hammering that thing in. Sparks are flying off that nail. Eventually, literally, the, the nail, the, the, the head of the nail just disappeared. Boom, it was just gone. Well, thankfully, a concrete drill bit helped. And when we got that whole drill, the nails went in a lot easier. What happened? There was massive pressure that was being created in that moment. And that's the idea here. Jesus is telling his followers that in the days of this tribulation, there's just going to be unique pressure that is brought to bear. And now notice how difficult this pressure will be. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. Don't turn back and even take your clothing. Don't go up and try to pack up your suitcase at home. He says, you've got to go. Notice what else in verse 17. Woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. What he's saying is, your flight will be so essential in that day. It will be so severe, the pressure surrounds you, that if you are pregnant in it that day, you may be slowed down. And so woe to you if you are in that place where you must flee, but because of being pregnant or having young children, you must go more slowly. Look what he says in verse 18. And pray that your flight be not in the winter. Pray to God. Ask God that when you're running for the hills, literally, it's not in the winter or it may slow you down. The winter, the atmosphere, the, the weather may hold you back. Remarkable statement. Run! And hope that you're not slowed down during this time. Notice what he says in verse number 21. He said again, and then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ. Look, Jesus is here on the scene. Or lo, he is there. Jesus is here. He says, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophet shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. He says those great physical pressure that people are going to experience during those days of trouble will be matched by the great spiritual pressure. When people are going to say, you see this times of trouble that are surrounding? Look, there's Christ. The Messiah has returned. Jesus has come back. And not only that, they will be pursuing miraculous signs and wonders, things that can't be explained by our natural laws of order. Miracles done. And he says, watch out. It's going to be so seductive. It's going to be so deceptive. He said that if it were possible, even the elect, even God's chosen ones would stumble. Now, the, the, we'll talk about this in a minute. The very language of it suggests that it's not possible. He's saying it would go so far to the extent that if it were possible, it would happen. He is emphasizing how significant that deception will be under incredible pressure. 
So the features, it's distinctively Jewish, it's distinctively awful, it's distinctively terrible, unlike anything else in human history. And the third feature here is that it's distinctively approached by Jesus. Here's, here's the point I just want to draw. Do you notice that before, when Jesus was saying, my followers will be under trouble, they'll be persecuted, they'll be afflicted, do you remember what he said? He said, don't worry about what you have to say when you're in prison and they're dragging you before councils. Why? Why? Because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And the gospel's going to be going forth to all nations. In other words, the idea coming through it is stand and speak. When you're under this pressure up until verse 13, you are going to stand and confidently proclaim the word of God. And then we move to verse 14. And he says, there's going to be trouble like no, the world has never experienced. And what is his recommendation? What is his command? Is it to stand and boldly speak? What is it? Run! Run! Don't stand and speak. Get out of there. If you're a pregnant woman, get out. If you're in the field, don't go back and pack your clothes. Run. Wow. What's he, what a unique change in strategy. Jesus, we know of Matthew chapter 28, giving the great commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now what does he say? He says, but when that time comes, run, flee, head for the hills. Okay? Those are the distinct features that Jesus is giving for his disciples. There's an unprecedented time that he was warning of them of. He was saying that during this time, there would be unique, destructive pressure, physically and spiritually. And then, in addition to that, there would be a distinct approach for, the, for his people. Run, flee, pursue safety. Now that leads to the question, secondly, of when is this going to be fulfilled? What is the fulfillment of these particular words that he says? I introduced you a couple weeks ago to a particular theory of interpreting this passage and others. It's called the preterist theory. Some people pronounce it preterist, but preterist theory of understanding Jesus' words. Here's what that means. Under this theory of interpretation, these words have already been fulfilled. They were accomplished when the Romans came on the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it and knocked it down to the ground. The temple was utterly cast down to the ground in A.D. 70, just about 40 years after Jesus gave these words. Now, there are some people, there are some people who are called call themselves preterists, complete preterists, who believe this entire chapter has been fulfilled. They believe Jesus came back in the first century AD. They just spiritualize it, and they don't believe there's any future coming of Jesus Christ. We will continue on ad infinitum into the future. Now, we're going to see next week that is not the Bible. It is not true. It is not orthodox. It is not for, in my view, Bible-believing Christians. But there's another view that you would call a partial preterist view. This is the view that there is still a future coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming in the future. But yet these words of the Great Tribulation were finished in around A.D. 70 when the Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem. And you say, well, Pastor, what do you think about that? Well, let me tell you one thing that I agree completely with 
with the preterist view. What I believe is that these words were partially fulfilled in AD 70. I take that for a couple reasons. One, because Jesus' followers, in, when they heard these words, would have absolutely believed them to be true of the coming tribulation of Rome. In other words, they would have approached AD 66 and AD 67 and AD 68 and 69 and 70. They would have seen all these events happening. And you know what they would have been saying? The disciples who heard him say these words, they would have said, oh, now we know. Now we know what Jesus was talking about. That's, that's what he was telling us to do. In fact, there's an interesting historical clue. There was a, one of the church fathers, one of the ancient church writers, a man named Eusebius in the second century AD. So, oh, about a hundred or so years after Jesus, talks about the Christians in Jerusalem fleeing the destruction of Jerusalem and exiting, fleeing to a city called Pella at the foothills of the mountains by the Sea of Galilee, fleeing to the north. And they did it, they said, under divine revelation, because Christ warned them. And these people fled to Pella, and they were spared some of these destructions. Is it possible that Jesus was having some reference to these words, a partial fulfillment in instructing his disciples to flee? I think it's very possible. I also think it's possible because of another connection that we see in the book of Luke. Now, I, just, you can just make a note of this. We won't turn there for time's sake. But in Luke chapter 21 and verses 20 through 24, Luke is giving another account of Jesus' same sermon, his same Olivet Discourse. And he gives words that seem to point to this partial fulfillment in the A.D. 70 time period. Listen to what he says. In Luke 21, he sa Jesus says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Was Jerusalem compassed, surrounded by armies in and around A.D. 70? It was. It was destroyed to the ground. Okay, so we see a partial fulfillment there. He then says this as well. There shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Did that happen in AD 70? We talked about this. Josephus, the historian, tells us that more than one million Jews were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and that nearly 100,000 Jews were taken into captivity. Absolute desolation and devastation for God's Old Testament covenant people. He goes on to say, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. You say, what does that mean? My view is that we are in the times of the Gentiles right now. That what we have seen historically happen to the city of Jerusalem over the last 2,000 years has been the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy that Jerusalem would be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. And so I believe that there is another prophetic connection to suggest that Jesus' words were partially fulfilled here in Mark 13 as a kind of foreshadowing of what would come. But I do not believe that those words were exclusively fulfilled 
in AD 70, that there is no future fulfillment. And we began to talk about this last week in looking ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this idea of this Antichrist who will arise as a powerful world leader and figure and place himself as an object of worship. Let me just very briefly map out for you, very briefly, what would be called the futurist position, a future fulfillment of these events. And I understand that for some of you, this may be going over your heads. Your heads may be spinning. What are you talking about? Just bear with me. We'll try to just briefly sketch it out and then draw some conclusions for ourselves. What is the futurist position? Here's what it is very simply. The futurist position believes, generally speaking, the most common one is that one day, the very next redemptive event in human history that will occur is what is called the rapture of the church. Those who believe in this view refer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when scripture speaks of Jesus, we being caught up in the air to meet him in the clouds, that we will one day, his church, his believers will be raptured. And at that point, a seven-year period of this great tribulation, of this great distress, will come upon all the world. And those who hold this view tie this in to the Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And you can go look at this on your own timetable, review Revelation 6 through 19 to see the descriptions of God's judgments upon the world coming. And they also tie it in to Old Testament prophecy. You remember we, we studied Daniel chapter 9 together as one example of this kind of Old Testament prophecy that they believe will be fulfilled. I'll just read you a couple verses from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, an Old Testament book that may be speaking of this day. Here's what verse 1 says. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Now listen to this. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Have we heard something like that before? Sounds a lot like what Jesus said, doesn't it? There's going to be a time of trouble like there wasn't since the day of creation until now. And here's what Daniel says, or what is told to Daniel. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Again, connecting this time of trouble to ultimately the resurrection at the coming of Jesus Christ and the eternal end of all things. So the general idea of the futurist position is that this time of tribulation is uniquely for the Jewish people or will uniquely be experienced by the Jewish people. That during the seven-year period, a great multitude of Jewish men and women will accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There will be a great proclamation of the gospel throughout all the world. Revelation speaks of two witnesses who will be proclaiming the word of God. And that these, there will be a great drawing together of Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith. And that at, after three and a half years, there will be a then, uh, for the last three and a half years, a great period of, of trouble that has never been seen in all of world history. And at the end of those three and a half years, Jesus will come back to earth and establish his 
kingly reign, crushing all authority and power, defeating the devil, and bringing about finally the millennial reign and the end of all things. I know that is a very brief sketch. There are many different pieces to be filled in, but you can go and study that on your own time. Let me just ask you this. How is a Christian to think about these two different views and try to understand which one is more likely the right one? Let me just tell you how I have viewed it and where I come out. I will tell you, as I've said, I agree with a partial preterist view and believing that some of these things were partially fulfilled during this time. But I do see a future time, a future tribulation, a future fulfillment, a complete fulfillment of all these events. And I have three reasons for that, basically. The first one is, I think this is supported by the text. Now, when Jesus says that this time of trouble, there will not have been a day like that in all of human history, and there won't be a day like it until the end of the time, can we really say the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 fits that bill? Oh, it was, it was uniquely terrible. A million or more Jews dying, 100,000 Jews being taken into captivity. That was horrible. But friends, does that really compare against the millions, the multiple millions of Jews that were slain in the Holocaust? Does it reach the, er the, the age of World War I in which up to 20 million people died and another 20 million were wounded? Does it reach the time of World War II when upwards of 50 million people died in direct conflict and up to 20 or more million people died as a result of famine or starvation or other uh, 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 after effects of the war? Does it reach that level that you would say AD 70 was the worst time that has ever happened, including the flood, and that will ever happen in the future? I, I just don't feel comfortable saying that Jesus intended us to look back at that moment in history and say, nothing's ever going to get worse than that. I just don't see it. The second reason that I, I tend to believe there is a, a compelling futurist view of this is what we see in the book of Revelation and what we see in the Old Testament of our Bible. If you believe that all these events were fulfilled solely in AD 70, I got to tell you, friend, Revelation 6 through 19 makes no sense. Oh, don't get me wrong. Many have attempted to make it make sense, but not in any way that we normally read our Bibles. You wouldn't sit down to Revelation 6 through 19 and read your Bible in any normal kind of sense and say, oh, I understand. He's speaking very allegorically about these historical events that have all already been fulfilled. And, and for me, frankly, I'm not saying that's impossible, that the preterist view is, is, is impossible. I'm not. Many very godly, wonderful men have held that view and still hold it today. I'm not criticizing them or their good faith. But I'm saying if I'm going to be wrong when it comes to Scripture, if I'm going to get it wrong, I want it to be wrong because I read it normally. Not because I read it very allegorically, very, oh, there's a picture here, there's a picture. I just want to sit down and read the Bible and say, what does it say? What does it, what does it appear to say normally to me? Trying to read it as normally and reasonably and literally as I can in that context. And when I do that, when I do that, I think... I think that this idea of a future fulfillment is right. Only one more thing that I'll just comment on very briefly, and you can go home and chew on all these things. One final thing. 
I think the future view of future fulfillment of these words best satisfies the Bible teaching that Israel, national ethic Israel, will see a return to Jesus as their Messiah. I'll just give you a couple of verses in Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 and 26. Paul tells us there's a blindness that has fallen upon ethnic Jews, upon those who came from the seed of Abraham. Jesus was of the seed of Abraham. They have rejected him as their Messiah. They say, we do not believe that he is our king, our Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. Paul says there's a blindness that has fallen upon Israel. But do you know what he says the very next verse? He says, one day all Israel will be saved. I don't mean he, I don't think he means that every single individual Jew will embrace Jesus as Messiah. But I do believe he thinks that there is a future day coming when there will be a great ingathering of Jewish believers, not around Christ, but through the work of Christ, believing on Christ, accepting Christ as their Messiah. And I believe that there will be that day coming in the future and that best fits with what we see in our Old Testament prophetic literature, what we see in Romans chapter 11, and then interpreting the book of Revelation. Will I stand dogmatically on that? No. Will I say I believe that's the best that I can understand it right now, attempting to read scripture as normally and as reasonably as I can? Yes, you're smart people, you go home, you think about it, and if you have questions or concerns, Let's talk about it a little more. These are challenging subjects. So again, what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that in this fulfillment, there is a partial fulfillment in AD 70 that his own disciples would have seen and would have experienced. And there is a future fulfillment. There is a future and final consummation when this great era of tribulation will be unlike anything that human, humans have ever experienced. And you can read about that more, I think, in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. Well, where does that leave us? Let's step back. We've seen the features of this event. We've seen the fulfillment of this event. And let's finally talk about the focus of this event, shall we? Do you notice that when it comes to the specific tribulation itself, the specific affliction, Jesus only speaks of it in one verse? Really? I'm, I guess I'm speaking of the physical affliction. He speaks of that in verse number 19. He speaks of it a little more in verse 20. And then in verse 22, he speaks of the spiritual aspect of this tribulation. Here's my simple point. Jesus is not in this discourse getting into deep detail about what those days are going to be like. He just says they're going to be uniquely awful and uniquely deceptive and uniquely destructive. That's his point. But what is his focus? What's he really driving at? What is the big picture, the panorama of the entire scene? Notice what he says in verse 20. Except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. I think the idea is everybody would be destroyed. No one would make it through those uniquely destructive days if there hadn't been a shortening. But listen to this. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he has shortened the days. And he goes on to say in verse 22 that these days will be so seductive that they would seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Let's step back for a minute. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of his elect? Well, he says it. 
His elect whom He hath what? Say that again. His elect whom He hath... Man, folks. Cat got your tongue? Let's try it one more time. His elect whom He hath... Chosen. Thank you. Whom He hath chosen. What does it mean that He has chosen them? The Bible speaks of a doctrine that we call election. And it's not something for us to run away from in fear or to cower because we may not fully understand it. Here's what it simply means. God has chosen. God has chosen. The doctrine of election means that God has chosen from the, a time period in the past, has chosen who will be saved. They say, whoa, whoa. Well, what are you getting at there? You know, frankly, friends, here's what we see throughout Scripture. The book of 1 Peter 1 tells us that certain of us are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And if you are trying to understand perfectly and completely the doctrine of election, you're going to have to understand God's foreknowledge. You're going to have to know perfectly what that is. Well, you say, well, I don't know what that is. Exactly. You don't, and I don't either. But it doesn't change this. At God chose. God chose. He said it right here. Jesus said it. His elect whom he hath chosen. Listen to Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 1. Speaking of God, he says, According as he, God, has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having chosen us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, For his elect's sake, whom he hath chosen. Friends, do not let that discourage you. Do not let that confuse you to the point where you're just going to run away from the whole topic altogether. Here's the idea. It should be incredibly comforting to you. Why? Because what he says is that God's choice, who God chooses, God cares for. That's the whole point that he's driving at here. What does he say to his elect in this period of great tribulation? He says, I care for you, so do what? Run! Flee, I'm warning you in advance. I'm caring for you. Run, I have foretold you everything, he says. Run. And then what does he say? Because I care for you, I have shortened the days of that tribulation. I have shortened the days of those difficulty. Other, otherwise, no one would survive. I have shortened those days. And then what does he say? He says those days are going to be so seductive and so deceptive that if it were possible, even the elect would fall away. What's the point? As I've said, the point is, it's not possible. God cares for them. God cares for the ones whom he has chosen. And if you have any question about this, I think the best way to think about this is exactly what has been said before. If you were walking by the door of salvation, accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see over that door, it's written, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And you see that sign over that door, and you say, I want to experience the water of life. And in you go, and you accept Jesus as your Savior. Whosoever will may come, the Gospel says. And then you get through that door of salvation, and you turn around, and what do you see? You say, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And you say, oh yes, that's right, God. 
That's right. You chose me. You chose me in a sense before I ever chose you. Whosoever will may come. Yes, that's true. That's the Bible. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Yes, that's the Bible too. Embrace both those things, even if you don't always fully understand it. Friends, let's be clear about this. If you are, have trusted in Jesus Christ today for your eternal salvation, he has chosen you. You are his. He knew you before you, ever before you ever chose him, and he chose you. What a truth. What an amazing thing for us to take comfort in, not to run away from. God chooses. God cares. And that's why, notice finally, God cautions. Notice with me here in verse 23 as we end this passage. He says, but... Take ye heed, listen up, watch out. Behold, I have foretold you all things. Does Jesus say, you know, because I have chosen you, just kick your feet up, don't worry about anything else, be very sluggish spiritually, and it's okay, I've got you. No, he doesn't say that for a second. He says, I've chosen you. So what does that mean? Listen up and pay attention. Listen up and pay attention. You see, when we understand the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of election, it should not make us less careful about our spiritual life. It should make us more careful, more watchful, more paying heed to what is going on around us so that we might be found faithful for him when he comes. I think about it this way. I grew up in a home where I experienced the deep, unconditional love of my parents. My parents would tell us, we love you. We will always love you. And they demonstrated that by their love. And what I experienced in my home was that love that my parents gave to me did not make me say, oh, well, I, they're always going to love me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to act in any ways that they disapprove of because you know what? They're always going to love me. That didn't make me do that. Do you know what it made me say? It made me say, I really want to please them. I don't want to betray their love. I want to fulfill their love in the way that I respond. And do you know God is the exact same way? God appeals to us by saying, if I have chosen you, you are mine, and I will always, always, always love you. And the Christian who has experienced that love doesn't say, oh, sweet, I guess I'm on easy street and I don't need to worry about anything anymore. No, he says, God, let me respond to your love and let you be pleased with the way I respond. Let me follow you so that your smile will be beaming down on me all the time. Let me love you because you first loved me. And so what does he say? Listen up. Take heed. I've chosen you. You're mine. I'll protect you. I'll care for you. So pay attention. Don't be deceived. Don't wander away. Remain steadfast. Friends, to me, this is the great focus 
of the tribulation, of these days of tribulation that are prophesied. It's not for us to dive down necessarily into every single detail and understand it perfectly. I certainly don't. But it is to say this, God is at work. God is a people in this world that he is gathering out to himself right now and they will be with him eternally. They are his people and God is their God. And whatever tribulation, whatever difficulty, whatever suffering you are going through right now, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you are in the kingdom of God, you are his and he cares for you. So listen up and take heed. And walk with him, walk worthy of the love that he has bestowed on you. Friends, let's step back as we close today and look at that panorama. Let's look at the big picture. Yes, not only of a great difficulty that will be coming on all the world, but in wherever we are right now, that there is a God in heaven who has chosen his people to be brought through whatever difficulty they're in and to live with him eternally. I close with only this question, friend. Have you entered the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you his? Are you a Christian this morning? If not, let's make sure you don't leave today before you enter the kingdom by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior.